Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas. Our guest today is Marcus J. Moore. Marcus is the author of the Stacks Book Club November pick, The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America. We talked today with Marcus about why he wanted to tell Kendrick Lamar's story now, his career in music writing, and Marcus gives us some recommendations on music we should definitely be listening to. Don't worry, there are no spoilers on today's episode. Great news, The Stacks finally has merch, and you can get yourself some of our super cute gear by going to thestackspodcast.com slash shop. Also, anyone who joins the Stacks Pack in November gets a free audiobook from our friends over at Libro FM. And that's in addition to the two for one deal that they offer for any listener of the show when they use the code the Stacks at checkout. If you want to join the Stacks Pack, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. I also always like to say an extra special thank you to our newest members of the Stacks Pack. This week, that includes Sonia Chen, Maggie, Laura Marquez, Amelia Lewis, Stephanie Cristione, Alicia Monroe, Valerie Berezin, Cindy Allman, Jamie Moore, and Alice Shanklin. Thank you all so much. And now, without further ado, let's get to my conversation that is spoiler-free with Marcus J. Moore. All right, everybody. I'm very excited. Today, I am here with Marcus J. Moore. Marcus is the author of our November book club pick, The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America. Marcus, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'm so thrilled to have you. I'm thrilled to be discussing this book with you today. It's something that we have not done on the podcast. We've never done a music biography. I actually don't think we've done a, we did the autobiography of Malcolm X, but I don't think we've done anyone else's biography. So this is exciting for the show. And we always start here in about 30 seconds or so. Can you just tell us about your book? Yes. uh, The Butterfly Effect is a book about Kendrick Lamar. It's a culture biography that talks about um, his upbringing and his music, but it also talks about Black culture as a whole and how he affected it. Yeah. It's sort of an interesting um, mix of lyrical analysis and then cultural analysis and a biography. And it has a lot of different layers, which I think 
is really cool, especially for a book about someone who's not only alive, but super young still. Like Kendrick Lamar's not even 35. He's a young dude. And, you know, as far as music goes, he's put out some incredible albums. But even that, like, not so many. So I'm curious why you felt compelled to write his story now. Well, a a few different reasons. Um, One, first and foremost, uh, I just wanted to give flowers, you know, like as corny and as cliche as that sounds, I feel like, especially when you're talking about black art, there's always this notion of, oh, you know, you, you have to wait until the person gets older or sadly they, they pass away and then you look back at their career. And this year, especially, I, even though I turned in the book last year with, for that same reason, you know, in, in terms of like giving the flowers early, you know, after I submitted the book, like Kobe Bryant passed away. Pop Smoke right. died, um, Chadwick Boseman died. And so Ugh. there's, you know, so it's, it's always this like, then they pass away, then we look back and we're sad. But I'm like, well, I feel like we need to be celebrating people while they're alive. And and I don't, maybe I'm just one of those mushy people where, tell <laughs> you know, you got to tell your friends how great they are because we all have moments where you don't feel so great. You know, you don't feel like what you're doing is, is, is valuable. I'm not saying that Kendrick felt that way, but just as a, as a black man, just as a black author, a black writer, I want, I always want to celebrate music and art that may be a little bit off the beaten path, but with Kendrick, you know, we all know how great he is, but at the same time, he needed to be sort of canonized in, in, in literature form because, you know, when you look at other books, you can read a Bruce Springsteen book a million times. You can read the same Bob Dylan book a million times, but like there's a whole generation of talent similar to Kendrick's where they, they deserve a book too. And so that's what I wanted to do with him is just sort of celebrate this recent history. Okay. So that reminds me of something. I'm going to kind of jump off. We'll come right back to this, but I don't know if you know that we're doing the book with Cole Kushner on the podcast. And I don't know if you're familiar with Cole's work, but he has a podcast called Dissect and he's done two Kendrick Lamar albums. And when I asked him specifically about why he does hip hop albums, he said a very similar thing, which was, you know, you could hear someone dissect a Beatles album a million times or Radiohead a million times. And he's like, I love Radiohead. They're my favorite band, but I wanted to lend my background as a music person, as someone that, you know, is quote unquote taken seriously or whatever that means to this incredible black art that often we're not seeing dissected or talked about. And it did make me think about Kendrick Lamar because I, there's a few Kendrick Lamar songs that I just love. Like I think humble is so good. It just makes, it's a bop. Like it's just such a great song, but I don't feel like I don't feel like I ever really understood how great Kendrick Lamar was as an artist and as a creative until I listened to Cole's work and until I read your book and I started thinking about what he was doing in space and time. And so I think the work that you do is is really important because I'm someone who loves hip hop and I listen to hip hop, but I I don't even always understand what I'm listening to unless someone's telling me like, hey, 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 this is important. Pay attention, you know? So I just think that that's really cool that both of you have now said this um, as part of the reason that you that you chose Kendrick Lamar and why you do the work that you do. Um, I'm interested in how you researched for this book and if you talk to the very private 
illustrious Kendrick Lamar um, for the book. Yeah, no, no. Um, he he and TDE were the first email slash call that I made. But I knew early on in, in 2018 when the deal was locked in that I wasn't going to get them because they're always in album mode. And when they're in album mode, they lock in and they don't talk to anybody. Like, it's nothing personal. It's just that's how they are. And so um, they totally know about the book. They knew about it first and foremost, but I didn't get an opportunity to speak with them. Um, But they also did a really cool thing indirectly where, you know, I've heard horror stories of this, you know, this person wants to write a book about, you know, whatever artist, whoever, whoever that may be. And then they may go out there publicly and say, hey, you know, you're going to hear from this writer. Don't talk to him. They didn't do that. Right. Right. It's very (laughs) it's very rare that that happens. But I've heard that happen before. And so they didn't do that with me. Like I I knew pretty early on that I wasn't going to talk to them. But then then they just kind of backed up and was like, you know, I would hope that once you reach that level of fame that you, you know, who's writing about you. I would hope that maybe they did their Googles and they were like, okay, well, this isn't just any old body, right? And so we're we're intrigued to see what it comes up with. Yeah. I was just going to say for people who haven't read the book yet, can you just say who slash what TDE is? Because they're going to be like, I don't know what that means. Yes, yes. TDE. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. TDE. That's uh, Top Dog Entertainment. That is the label that Kendrick is on. Okay, perfect. Just in case it's it's in the book, you talk about them a ton in the book. But for people, I'm assuming some of y'all haven't read the book yet because you are last minute people like me and you're waiting till this week to read it because we're going to talk about it next week. Um, so but you did talk to a lot of people who work in and around and were part of I mean, most of the book focuses on to pimp a butterfly, I would say like a good I don't know, 60%, 70% of the book, like it's sort of we're it's sort of around at least the musical analysis part of it, certainly. Um, so you did get to talk to some people. Were there things that people told you about Kendrick Lamar that you were surprised to hear about him? Or were there things where you were like, wow, I didn't know he does that? Or that's so not what I had imagined of him or anything like that? Yeah, the thing that that surprised me the most is, you know, before this book and before talking to people, and going to different interviews um, where like people like Soundwave and Ali were talking, um, I just kind of equated Kendrick Lamar as a rapper, as a lyricist. You know, he goes in there, he likes to beat, he raps, he goes home. I didn't realize until um, until researching this book that he's a producer. Like he's in into every facet of the music. So he's not only writing his own music. He sat in on Kendrick Lamar, uh, excuse me, on uh, Kamasi Washington laying out the string parts. He he knows how to construct the beat to tailor it to what he wants to do. So instead of just a straightforward beat, he knows like, okay, right here, I'm going to slow this down. I'm going to tweak my voice here. I'm going to, you know, bring in a totally different beat. And then here's where Rhapsody is going to rap. You know, it, it's it, it, it's different things like that that I didn't realize that. He's essentially a jazz musician in in a rapper's body. Like Robert Glasper told me that and Terrace Martin told me that, where he's no different than somebody like a Herbie Hancock or a Pharaoh Sanders, who, even though they play this one instrument, they're conducting this whole thing. And so, you know, whereas To Pimp a Butterfly is a straight up jazz album, 
the album after that, Damn, is its own form of jazz. It's like a spiritual jazz album because it has so many different moving parts. And so me as a jazz head, that's the thing that made me light up. Like, oh, wait, he's a jazz dude? And then when you go back and you listen to his music and listen to the way his albums are constructed, you you totally see what they're talking about. So that was the most surprising thing, um, just from a musical standpoint. Right. And you're a music writer. That's your um, other job aside for being an author now, which is exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And I've heard you talk a little bit about how you were introduced to music. And I think you write about it maybe in the acknowledgments of your book, just from family. And you kind of were like an MTV generation kind of kid, like sitting in front of the TV, just like watching music and listening to music. So I'm curious kind of when you were like, yo, this is something I can actually make a job, even if I'm not creating the music, like even if I'm not a rapper or a pianist or whatever, like how did you figure out like I can be a music person? I can tell you the specific day. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was 2008. It was 2008. I, at the time I was a uh, education reporter covering uh, Montgomery County education and politics in uh, the DC suburbs of Montgomery County, Maryland. At the time, I had been covering education for four years, and it was a cool enough job. I learned a lot, um, but I was sitting in a school board meeting one day, and I literally said under my breath, "I can't do this anymore." I, I just because it was um, it was some crazy like you know some they were fighting about something, and it was just like, "Why am I covering this? This is this is nonsense!" Like I need to stop. And so from there, you know, I, I thought that. To be a music writer, I needed to come out and be at Pitchfork or be at Rolling Stone or be at these big pubs right away. But then I realized like, well, you know, if I'm not going to get these opportunities because I don't have any clips, let me just start my own thing. And so I, I set into motion my own website called DMV Spectrum, District, Maryland, Virginia Spectrum. And I just literally married my two loves. I, I knew how to write a little bit. I knew I loved music. Um, and so I just started doing it. I just, you know, I was driving around DC. I was driving around Maryland, all parts of Virginia, just covering all the local music I could. And so that, that also set into motion this, this idea that, you know, everybody's going to be covering the Kanye's and the Drake's and all these big names. I'm not going to get those assignments right now. So let me cover stuff that people ought to know about. Let me cover go-go. Let me cover, the open mic scene in DC and, and somehow find a way to blow those artists up a little bit more. And in turn, blowing myself up a little bit more as a guy who's always going to cover music that's, you know, off the beaten path. Um, so that's how I got into it. And then I just stuck with it. And from there it became a snowball. It was me reaching out to people. So, you know, I did DMV spectrum that caught the attention of the Washington city paper. And then I started emailing like BBC music MTV, OK Player, all these different places. And thankfully, they saw enough in my work to bring me on. And then I just it, I just kept going. I just kept that hustle going. Ugh, I love that. The stories like that give people like me hope for my my own future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just like figure it out as you go. If there's not space for you, create create the space. Mm -hmm. um, oh, God, I love that. That makes me so happy. I could use a little joy this week. For, for those of you at home, just so you know, we're recording this the 
Friday before the election. So you're listening to this after the election, but my headspace currently is three weeks ago for those of you listening at home. I just feel like we have to say it because it's such a weird time. And not that we talk about current events so much on this show, but sometimes we do. And then people are like, what? (laughs) That's so, that's like such old news. Okay. I want you to kind of do a soft pitch of your book to people who are listening to this podcast who maybe don't know a lot about Kendrick Lamar and are kind of like, why would I read this book? Tracy and Marcus, like I read literary fiction or whatever. I want you to kind of just explain to people why this book, what did, I mean, I'm going to follow up with why I think, but I'd love to hear what you think about this book kind of in the greater space of books at the moment. Yeah. I I feel like when people think about Kendrick Lamar, they think about just him as a lyricist and and as a rapper. And um, sadly, there's a, there's a segment of this country that still doesn't view hip hop as music. They still don't view it as viable art. And what Kendrick Lamar has done over the past decade is take hip hop from this one space of, okay, it's just, you know, something that um, black kids over here are doing to this grand art that everybody should pay attention to because he won the Pulitzer Prize. And he is the first rapper to ever win the Pulitzer Prize. And so that alone I feel like is worthy of of praise and acknowledgement. But at the same time, as he's, as Kendrick Lamar is ascending in his career, um, America is descending in their history. And so you, the book is this intersection of, okay, Kendrick Lamar is dealing with survivor's guilt. He's dealing with depression. He's dealing with all these things that people in hip hop don't really acknowledge. They don't really talk about. And at the same time, he's also informed by the killing of Trayvon Martin, the killing of Mike Brown, Sandra Bland, and all of these people. And so the book is not a traditional biography. Um, it's not a traditional celebrity biography. What it is, is it's a dissection of himself. It's also a dissection of America. And um, it, it discusses how he brought jazz back to the fore and all of these different things working in concert. And so... What I think people should get from the book or what I hope people get from the book is that um, black history is is American history. And even though it's recent history, it's something that needs to be discussed, um, you know, here and and from this day forward. Yes. I mean, all of that. I'm just going to add in another reason that if you're on the fence about this book or you're kind of like, what is this book that I suggest that you read it is that it's really good. Like the book is well done. And it it does kind of touch on those different parts, but also for people who like art or are curious about the ways that art function in society, this book does such a good job of kind of taking a, t- a tiny, 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 like just one person's art and explaining and kind of blowing it up and explaining how that has ripples throughout throughout the society in a really interesting way. So it's a book about Kendrick Lamar, but it's also a book about kind of the relationship, as you're saying, between art and America and art and history um, and specifically, you know, Kendrick, specifically black art, but also just in general, how those things work together. I have a, a question that it might just be a me question, but I'm going to ask it because I have a me podcast. <laughs> Do it. I need to know why you didn't spend more time on Damn, because that is the album arguably that made Kendrick, you know, 
high art, right? Because he won the Pulitzer for Dam. So I'm curious because Dam doesn't even come up until like the second to last chapter, I don't think. Or the last chapter. And then same with the Black Panther soundtrack, which is different. But Dam really is like, I think, you know, in his obituary, it will say one day, hopefully 90 years from now, Kendrick Lamar pulitzer prize winner for the album damn so i'm curious why that but why that album didn't get as much play in the book no that's fair i feel like by the time he was creating damn he started to be a a a lot more reclusive Mm. than he was in years past so even during the butterfly days and during the um untitled and mastered and good kid mad city like he was a lot out there he was out there much more in terms of discussing how the album was created, the impact and everything. And so to be frank, I also knew what I was up against because I didn't get the opportunity to talk to TDE. So that was the time when I had to sort of rely, either I had to rely on um, previous information or I relied heavily on Terrace Martin. Um, And I also had to put on my music critic hat a little bit more and say like, here's what he's talking about. And admittedly, um, Dam is a lot more, it, it's a lot leaner than To Pepper Butterfly, whereas, you know, it, To Pepper Butterfly was like this sort of quirky jazz record. Dam is, is a record for the club. Mm. But I didn't realize until I started dissecting that, that album again that he's talking about some deep spirituality. You know, he's talking, of, he's wrestling with the notion of God in his own life, not for everybody, but for himself. Right. And so, um, by the time, I, the reason why Dam is near the end of the book is because I also wanted to go in chronological order. I do right, realize that it's kind of Tarantino style where it, it drops you into this crazy scene, um, that being the, the Macklemore debacle at the Grammys, and then it Ugh. backs up, right, and then it right. backs up, and then it walks you up to the to the Dam part. And so um, when I listen to Dam these days, and even when I listen to it um, in 2017, it definitely felt like a sort of this victory lap in terms of, okay, I am Kendrick Lamar in all caps now. Here's my record. And, um, you know, I wanted to talk about how it won the Pulitzer and what that meant. But I also realized that these were leaner years for him uh, sort of vocally. You know, he wasn't really out there as much as he had been in previous years. Right, right. I am one of the like five people, I think, who likes damn more than To Pippa Butterfly. No, I have friends like that. I know that everyone loves to pimp a butterfly. I just, I mean, all right to me is like, I don't know, maybe one of the greatest songs ever. I think all right. is just an incredible song. It's just cause it's a bop, but it's also like a legit heavy hitting lyrical song. Mm-hmm. But to me, damn love is like, inc- I love love so much. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it. I was a spin instructor. And so also I think some of it is informed by like what songs I like to ride to. And that is one of the songs. I just loved riding to love. I know it's a weird song to spin to, but anyways, um, but your favorite is to pimp a butterfly or are you a good kid? Mad city person. What's your favorite Kendrick? Oh, no, to pimp a butterfly all day. I'm a jazz head. Like right, I know like that, deep yeah. crates. Yeah. So that's my right. joint. Okay, here we go. This is I, I'm I'm very curious about this because you've been you know deep in the Kendrick biography world. What do you if you had to pick one of Kendrick Lamar's most important contributions to the culture? What would you pick? I would pick his honesty, his honesty, mm. because you know 
I grew up on hip hop and I grew up in an era of hip hop where, you know, it was in the eighties when you had people like Boogie Down, well, excuse me, you had groups like Boogie Down Productions, you had Public Enemy. And then when, when, um, you had like MC Light, you had Queen Latifah, all these people where they had no problem being honest in their work. They had no problem talking about what was going on, especially in the case of Boogie Down Productions. You know, he had, they had an album, Karis One had an album called Edutainment, you know, and it was literally just him teaching the whole time, the public enemy, fight the power, you know. So I grew up on stuff like that. But I feel like when Kendrick came of age, Music, hip hop had stopped doing that. We were very celebratory. Like we were, maybe it was because of the Obama years, but everybody was in the club. Everybody was popping a bottle. And that's cool. I'm not, I'm not the old fogey dude where it's like, oh no, no, this is back (laughs) in my day. No, I'm never going to be one of those people. But I do feel like it was, it was pretty celebratory. The beats were a lot glossier. Right. But the thing about Kendrick that I've always appreciated that I think is his biggest contribution is that. Again, like we were we were talking about earlier, he's he's talking about the trappings of fame. He's talking about, okay, I'm I'm rich now, how do I pay taxes? Um, I'm on tour, but I want to be in Compton. I contemplated suicide, you know, all of these different things that right. rappers will not talk about because once you get to that level of success, there's this notion that you have a brand now and you have a brand to protect. And he doesn't do that. And, and he ne- he still doesn't do that. You know, like we were saying earlier, even with Dam, he's he's talking about God. He's talking about spirituality. He's talking about the last song is about how him, his dad and Top had this chance encounter at a KFC that Top was about to rob. You know, it, it's, it's crazy stuff like that that I feel like has gotten back to the foundation of hip hop that a lot of rappers have gotten away from. He's reminding us that hip hop is definitely about stories. It's about narratives because I, he doesn't want to make music that is just popular right now. He wants to make music that will last 10 years, 20 years, and will have books written about it. So I think that's, that's what he brings to the culture more than anything else. Yeah. I love that. You know what? Do you know who I'm always reminded of? Are you a sports person? Oh Yeah. Doesn't he sort of like his weird reclusiveness? Isn't it sort of like Kawhi Leonard? All day. Like, is that just because they're both from like LA? What is that about? Why are they both weird like that? That is a good question. That is a really good question. Yeah. Maybe it's an LA thing. I never thought about it like that. Yeah. I just always, they're both like inextricably linked in my mind. And it just is now dawning on me that it's because they're both sort of like weird recluse artisty people even though you know Kawhi's not I guess an artist but whatever that same kind of vibe like two friends weird weird that's true <laughs> but like great that. weird and great okay we have to talk about the cover of the book because it is so gorgeous <laughs> and I know most authors are like I didn't have anything to do with it but do you have anything to do with this cover how did it come to be talk to me about it yeah 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 we um yeah, I, I had something to do with that because I wanted it. I wanted it to feel like its own piece of art mm-hmm. because, you know, anytime we're talking about Kendrick Lamar, obviously we talk about the art and we talk about how gorgeous the art is, you know, the music itself, the beats. And um, I also knew that it wasn't a, you know, again, it's not a traditional biography, you know, it's, right. it's, 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 
almost like notes, notes to Kendrick, you know, that kind of thing. Notes about TDE. Um, and so I wanted it to look like handwriting. You know, I wanted it to look, it's not, that's not my handwriting, but I wanted it to look like that. Um, and yeah, the photo, the photo, it was just, um, we got the rights to it and we wanted to make it look poetic in a way where he's, you know, looking contemplative off to the side. Um, so yes, no, that was, that was definitely me saying like, Hey, let's make this look like a sort of a journal or notepad because I knew that's how the book kind of comes off too. It's very, it's me meditating on a lot of different things. Yeah. It's so, it's so gorgeous. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and then we will be right back. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. We're going to now transition a little bit more into you as a writer and your process and kind of how you wrote this book. So my first question is, if you were going to say 
this is sort of like a first date question. (laughs) If you were going to say that your writing was like a musician or an album, what would you compare it to? I'm so glad you asked that question because I've been thinking about this for so long. And you're the first person to ask, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just as a music head. I I liken my writing to Miles Davis in the 70s. Miles Davis, no, excuse me, Miles Davis from like 69 to 70. When, (laughs) you know, before then, uh, his music was quote unquote traditional, as traditional as jazz can be, right? Um, But in... 1969, he comes out with this album, In a Silent Way, where he goes electric for the first time. And in 1970, he comes out with Bitches Brew, which is like this uh, brooding sort of uh, electronic funk rock jazz album that changed the course of jazz music. So I've always liked my writing to that. It it has a very uh, conversational pace to it with everything that I write. But then it has these flares of like, oh, wow. You know, so even with this book, Chapter five is that, you know, chapters one through four, I'm kind of walking you through. And then once you get to chapter five, which is the fight for black life. And I'm just, it's just all Tamir Rice and Trayvon and Eric Garner. It shifts into this totally different direction. So that's what I've always likened it to. And um, when I was writing this book in particular, I was really taken by this album, by this um, jazz drummer from in Chicago named Micaiah McCraven. And it came out with an album called Universal Beings that has the same sort of leisurely pace, but it's a lot going on beneath just his subtle drum taps. And so that's what I would liken it to. That and I and I would liken this um yeah, I, I would liken a book to like a universal a, a weird mix of universal beings and Gene and Quelly Chris Gene Gray and Quelly Chris's Everything's Fine album. I don't know any of those albums, but I'm going to go listen. I do feel like you're very self-aware because I would totally describe your book in those same terms that you use. And I feel like I talk to a lot of authors and sometimes they say things that I'm like, are we talking yeah. about the same book? <laughs> yeah. So I feel like you really nailed that. I'm really impressed with that. I, oh, most people you. are not as self-aware with what they create, myself included. Um, so that was awesome. Wow. Uh <laughs> Okay, this is another kind of music question. I always ask people this, but I'm the most curious based on you because of what you do. But what sort of stuff were you listening to while you were writing this book? Obviously, aside from any Kendrick Lamar music. Oh, sure, sure. I was, um, again, I was listening to Makai McCraven's Universal Beings album, which I I love and I still love. I was listening to... Um, Everything's Fine, uh, which is a hip-hop album by Gene Gray and Quelly Chris. Uh, I thought that was the best album of 2018. Um, and I was also listening to uh, a couple different albums. I was listening to Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. And I was listening to this other jazz album called Wisdom of Elders by Shabaka and the Ancestors. And the reason why I was listening to those records is because along with the subtlety and the nuance that they provide, which is what I always try to, I always try to root my writing in nuance, you know, something that it's not going to beat you over the head, but for whatever reason, you just can't, you find yourself coming back to it, like an old Raphael Sadiq song, you know? Mm. Um, so I, I was listening to those records, but I also realized that this book wouldn't be anything without the people that are in it, you know, who are in it. And, um, much like Stevie's Songs in the Key of Life, where 
it's his name on the cover. When you look at the liner notes, you're like, oh, wow, Herbie Hancock is on this. Oh, man, Dizzy Gillespie played on this song and George Benson. and All these names are like in it. Um, same thing with Everything's Fine, the uh, Gene and Quelle record where, uh, yes, it's those two on the front. But, you know, you have Anna Wise that's all in there. You have, you know, Hannibal Burris and, you know, they all come together in this creative community to create this one thing. And so I'm thankful with this, it, it relates to this book because, like, um, you know, I knew I wasn't going to talk to Kendrick. I wasn't going to talk to TDE. But Robert Glasper gave me time, and Terrace Martin, and all these different people, and Reggie Inge, and Matt Jeezy. And so, yes, it's my name on the cover of the book, but it's essentially the literary form of Songs of the Key of Life, Everything's Fine, Universal Beings, where all of these people came together to make to help make the book, and I'm thankful for them. And so it, it kept me going back to those records. Ah, I love that. Okay, the other part of that question, which I separated, which I don't normally do, is what sort of stuff were you reading and or watching while you were writing this book? Yes, I was, um, admittedly, I didn't do a ton of reading, and here's why. I have a very good reason. Uh, <laughs> my friends are too good. Like, I could, I didn't want to be psyched <laughs> out. I didn't want to be psyched out. Like, I had, um, I had um, the Tribe Called Quest of Hanif joint. Uh, that it was just, I kept staring at it. I was like, man, I need to, I really need to read that. But he's so good that I was just like, I don't want to read it. And then I go back to mine. And I'm like, man, I don't even like my book anymore. And like um, Jason Green's book of, um, about uh, the memoir about his daughter passing away. I had that um, that I had. And then obviously like literally every Jason Reynolds book. <laughs> I was like, I can't read his book. <laughs> it's just going to make me mad because I can't write as good as him. Um <laughs> And so, you know, I know that sounds like I'm cheating, like, oh, he didn't even no, read. No, lots but... of people say that. Lots of people yeah. say that they don't read while they're writing, or if they do read, they only read things that they've already read before. So, like, a lot of people say, like, they'll reread Sula by Toni Morrison, or people will say, like, I, I don't, I didn't read anything while I was writing because I didn't want anything to, like, get in the way, or maybe I read essays. Or So you're not alone in that. It's common that people don't read. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I just wanted to say that, like, it, I had a big old stack that was, I'm, get, I'm getting through now, but I didn't want to be psyched out. And as far as stuff that I was watching, again, I didn't want to take in too much stimuli because inadvertently by taking in all this different stimuli, you their voice becomes yours. Mm. And I never want to disrespect anybody that I know or anybody that I revere by inadvertently taking their thoughts and making making them my own in the book. And so... I did a pretty, I, I hope I did a pretty good job of just getting away and writing my own thing and catching up on that stuff after I turned in the book in um, September, 2019. Right. Right. Okay. And so when you're writing, what, how do you like to write? How many hours a day? How often do you, I mean, you said you have music on, so you have music on while you're writing. Are you at home? Are you in a cafe? If it's not a pandemic, <laughs> most importantly, do you have snacks or beverages, rituals, like kind of set the scene for your writing? Absolutely. I, I try to, um, I try to set office hours for myself. And okay. so when I first started writing the book, I was still in Brooklyn, uh, New York. And and um, I made it a point every day to be, I live over here by Pratt, you know, Pratt Institute. 
And so I would make it a point to be at the library every day by 9 a.m. With my coffee, with my little, you know, a, a bagel sandwich. Obviously, I wouldn't eat that every day because that, <laughs> that can go left really quickly. So, you know, I would, I would be there by nine o'clock and I would dedicate the first two hours of my day to just writing as much as I could and, and writing slowly and not rushing out the words. And so I had a goal every day of writing a thousand words, a thousand words a day. I wasn't going to go above that. I wasn't going to go below that. Um, so I would write from Pratt for like nine to 11 and then I would, I would on purpose, make it a point to walk way down into Fort green and go to green grape, uh, which is a cafe that has since closed because of the pandemic. And I would work from there for another two, three hours. Um, and you know, like every, every writer, it seems I had my little coffee in every place. I get a small and, uh, (laughs) And I, I would just, you know, dedicate just time to a chapter a day. Um, so it was important for me to not write 12 hours and 13 hours because I'm a happily married person. And so I wanted to make sure I'm, I, I remain human, you know, so I would I would write from 9 a.m. to about five, maybe six if I was pushing it. If I was getting closer to the deadline, I would go till six o'clock. Um, and so I would do that every day. So then. By the, by the time my writing was over, I could come in here, cook dinner, or I could, you know, still just be a human being, watch the game, watch Kawhi Leonard, you know, I can watch the finals and stuff like that. Um, but the second part of the answer, and then I'll wrap it up, uh, in between time, after I got the deal and I was writing the book, my wife and I also got a place in Nairobi, Kenya, in East Africa. And so uh, about 60% of the book was written from there, from a, a co-working space called Ikigai. And it was the same deal where I would make sure I was out of the apartment by like eight or nine. I would write until about five. Then I would go back to the apartment. And because it was seven and eight hours ahead of New York, mm. I felt like I could still get all my writing in before my email starts lighting up right. in the evening. So that was my process. And why did you guys get a place in Nairobi? What was that about? Yeah, it, that was my wife's doing. Um, I was, uh, I still remember it. It was September, 2018. I was in here working. I think I was working on like chapter one of, uh, of the book. And um, she had gone to Nairobi for, for work. She had a, a few conferences that she was conducting and she comes back in here and her eye, I've never, never seen her eyes that wide before. She was just like, what do you think about moving to Nairobi, Kenya? It is the next wave. It is, oh, it is amazing. It's great. And it, no lie, it was like a five-minute conversation um, because <laughs> at the time, I knew I was going to have to leave band camp. At the time, I was there full-time as a senior editor. And uh, there was no way I could do all of... Uh, I, I couldn't fulfill my responsibilities at band camp and write this book, mm. you know, because it was mad important. So... I knew I was leaving. So I was like, well, as long as Nairobi has Wi-Fi, I'm good. Uh, (laughs) And so it was her and she was launching a business. She launched a business called Live Africa. And she was like, well, I can't launch a business called Live Africa if I don't live in Africa. Right. And um, she's wet. Her her folks are West African. She's originally from her parents are from Sierra Leone. Um, My wife, Mventi, is from D.C., and so we just lived on the uh, we just decided to go to the continent. And And that's why. 
if you noticed in the book, there are, there are a few different places where I talk from a personal standpoint about what it's like to land and to be in the continent and to, to, to sort of talk to the local people there. And it's solely from living in Nairobi, Kenya. People don't talk about Nairobi as a destination, but it's amazing. Wow. And are you, you're back in the States now. Is that because of the pandemic? No, well, indirectly. Um, this is like sort now. of becoming a personal interview. Sorry, I'm just really curious. No, no, no. you can ask any <laughs> questions you want. Ask any questions you want. No, we're, we're back because um, one, it was book promotion time. Secondly, because of the pandemic, um, I hadn't seen, we hadn't seen our family since like March. Mm. And so, you know, when you have parents who are a little bit older, that time, you know, the, the time that you spend with them is more important. And so we came back. And we're going to be here through the holidays. So it's, it's you know, a couple of different reasons why we're back in Brooklyn. Plus, we just love Brooklyn. So right. so you're so you are kind of live in two places, basically. You're not bi-coastal, mm-hmm. you're bi-continental. Yeah, which is challenging, but yeah. it's, it's, it's a blessing, too. But, yep, that's our that's our deal right now. That's so cool. I love that. Okay. I'm going to get back to talking about your book, though. I probably could spend a whole another like, hour to asking you about Nairobi, but we'll we'll pretend like we're on track today. <laughs> what other musical artists would you want to write a book about? Ooh, well, book number two is about De La Soul. Ooh. Uh, yeah, that's book number two. I'm right. It's called High and Rising after their, you know, their debut album, Three Feet High and Rising. And it's coming out on uh, HMH, HMH Books okay. uh, 2022. But honestly, you know, a little insight a uh, little inside baseball. Uh, initially, I wanted book number two to be about Pharaoh Sanders, this uh, jazz legend. Okay. Jazz legend. Um, he, you know, just a super quick uh, story. He um, he was at the forefront of spiritual jazz and free jazz in the late 60s and early 70s, indirectly, because there was this holy trinity of, like, saxophonists. It was him, Albert Eiler, and John Coltrane. John, both John and Albert pass away much too soon. And that all of a sudden, Pharaoh's at the forefront. And as he's trying to get his music off the ground, here in this other cafe in Greenwich Village, is this young kid named Bob Dylan who's trying to get his music off the ground too. And so that's the story that I wanted to tell. And hopefully it can be book number three. If any publisher is listening, that would be great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, But no, I would love to also write about Stevie, Stevie Wonder, uh, I would love to write a book about Alice Coltrane, about Minnie Ripperton, mm. um, and uh, Yasin Bey, uh, formerly known as Most Deaf. I would love to write those books. Oh my gosh. Okay. I feel like I should ask you this. This was not on my list, but again, another personal question from me. Sure. I am not a jazz mu- listener, but that's not because I don't, it's because I don't know anything about jazz. So it's not like I have anything against jazz music. I just am, you know, a Luddite or whatever. And I like hip hop. I like pop music. So I want you to maybe recommend to me and other people like me a great album or two to start kind of dipping my feet into jazz. Nothing too difficult to listen to. Something that you're like, this would be great for someone like you. I know you don't know all my music tastes. I love Beyonce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love I mean, Rihanna. They're great. I mean, they're amazing. I love them too. <laughs> they're amazing. So I get it. But as far as like a What's a good jazz album that's, uh, I would say, um, Herbie Hancock's, uh, 
Mumendishi album. It's Swahili for creator. Okay. Um, that it, it came out in, I want to say 1971. It's very meditative and it's very, I don't know. It, it, it's very pondering in a way at the time it didn't sell well because jazz had been transitioning to this, like, you know, brighter strain of like funk. And it's a little spacey, but it's not so spacey where you can't get what's going on. It's one of those records where you're into books, like play it in the background while you're reading and it doesn't get in the way of what okay. you're trying to absorb. Um, other than that, something more recent, I would definitely say Nabaya Garcia's Source album, okay. um, because it's technically jazz, but it gets into some some reggae, some dub. It gets, in, it gets into some pop music. So okay. those are the two I'd say start with. Okay, good. I'm going to start. I'm going to like DM you and be like, okay, I listened and this is what I think. I need more like this or more like that. I, sure. I feel like I should listen to jazz. I feel like it's, it's people who listen to it, love it. And it's important music to the culture, but I just don't know anything. I wasn't raised on it. You know, it's, I feel like music is one of those things, mostly whatever you're raised on. And then eventually if you decide to get a life partner or get married or something, whatever they were raised on, like I never listened to Paul Simon in my whole life. And now I'm like kind of a Paul Simon fan because my husband is like really into him. Um, but like, I feel like aside from whatever your parents introduce you to, it's sort of like you, you listen to whatever your parents introduce you to, whatever you kind of think is great when you're in middle school and then like whatever your mm -hmm. partner later in life or whatever introduces you to, but it's, it's hard to get into something that is not introduced to you by someone who knows. So I feel like since you're someone who knows about jazz, I'm going to let you introduce me to something. <laughs> no pressure. Okay. This is a really important question. What is a word that you can never spell correctly on the first try? Oh man. Inconvenience. Ooh. Inconvenience kills me every time I Impossible. type it. I'm like, God. And I always get the red squiggly line underneath it every <laughs> time. It never fails. I, I cannot spell that word either, which should surprise exactly zero people. Okay. This is sort of similar to my jazz question. What's some new and exciting music that you're really loving that you think people should be checking out because maybe in a few years they might be winning the Pulitzer Prize too, or they might be the book that you write, your your seventh book or something? I got to tell you, um, there is this underground movement of uh, hip hop slash soul artists slash producers they are all moving in the same circle and they're all creating great records. Off the top of my head, Pink Sifu, um, this guy named Mike in all capital letters, M-I-K-E. Um, you have Fly Anakin. You have um, you have uh, Nelson Bandana. You have uh, Kaya. You have uh, Liv. They all run in the same circles and they all create this very meditative strain of rap and soul that's rooted it's rooted in black plight and it's rooted in very isolated themes like depression and, and you know just trying to figure out how to where the next meal is coming from stuff like that but they somehow find a way to spin it forward into something positive and something forward-looking and i'd also add to that like um akai solo is another one and mobby like and and they're all sort of in the school of earl sweatshirt where uh, Earl Earl was doing that before everybody, and before him, it was Jeremiah J that was doing all of the. You know, they were creating the same kind of music, but they they've somehow made it a, made it 
a movement. Couple that with the fact that you have this really brilliant director slash writer named Terrence Nance, who um, was the creator of uh, Random Acts of Flyness on HBO. And it's all, they, they all sort of move in the same, the similar pack of, you know, unapologetic black art that I feel like more people need to need to know about. And I feel like it's the next wave. Um, so that's what I'm really into right now. It's that whole collective and standing on the corner is another one. And Slauson Malone, like all of these people, like the records are similar, but they all tell a very, very robust story that I feel like more folks need to be into. Ooh, I'm so excited. I'm about to go nuts on my Spotify. <laughs> um, okay. For people who love The Butterfly Effect, they've read it, they think it's great. What other books might you recommend to them? Not necessarily about Kendrick Lamar, but kind of in the same vein or maybe things that are in conversation with your work. Mm-hmm. I would say um, people ought to check out Empire State of Mind, which is a, a like-minded culture biography of Jay-Z. They came out years ago. Um, I would also recommend, I mentioned it before, but uh, Hanif's A Tribe Called Quest book called Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. Um, there is a book on Dapper Dan called, um, you know, it's, it, it's, that's a memoir, but it's, it's brilliant. Like okay. the Dapper Dan book is great. Um, so I would stick with those. Those are like in close alignment. I love that. I'm going to ask you a question that is probably not even going to be relevant when this episode comes out, but I'm curious your take on it. In the last week or so, we've seen a lot of rap musicians come out and endorse Donald Trump. And I'm just curious if you have thoughts about that because I, oh, I, yeah. I, I'm curious about them. You know, and, and I'm here's where I sound like the jaded journalist. I'm not surprised. Like sure. the thing that the thing that surprises me is, you know, when when you're on Twitter and you're scrolling and all of these people are fake shocked by these famous people doing crazy things. Right. Like it happens all the time. It's been happening all the time. So whether it's Ice Cube, whether it's whether it's Lil Wayne, Kanye West, it there's nothing that any of these people can do that will surprise me. Like, mm-hmm. I think we need to start doing more to separate art from the person. Sure. We can still listen to the Lil Wayne mixtapes. We can still listen to N.W.A. We can still listen to Dark Twisted Fantasy and all of this. Uh, Kanye's Dark Twisted Fantasy and still enjoy the music, but then not be shocked when they come out as, you know, supporting Trump. Like, I, I put no stock in these people in that regard. That's none of my business. Right. Can you, so I agree with you as someone who consumes a lot of art and at one point would say that I was an artist, that the art and the artist are separate. And, you know, I studied theater in school and we studied a lot of crazy artists who made really great work. But for me, I can't, I can turn it on, but I can't enjoy it anymore. Are you able to still enjoy the music knowing what you know about the artist? Because that's, it's not that I'm like, oh, I can't, li-, like, I won't listen to it. It's like, I put it on and I'm like, ugh, Kanye, get out of here. You're so annoying right now. I can't stand you. Why are you on my ballot? Like, get out of here. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. That's totally fair. It, it, it takes me a while. It definitely takes me a while. It's not one of those things where I can, like, even yesterday, like, oh, wow, Lil Wayne took a picture with Donald Trump. Let me go play a Lil Wayne mixtape. Right. Like, I can't do it. I have to step away from it. But once I step away... And I go back, like I even did that with Kanye, you know, when he was going through, I guess, well, it can only be described as a public meltdown. Right. Um, But then I would, 
I would go back and I would play Runaway from like Dark Twisted of Fantasy. I would play like Ugh. Late Registration. And I'm like, man, where is this guy? Like, yeah. where is that guy? Yeah. And so I listened to it in that regard, but I definitely have to step back from it. And then it doesn't affect me when, when I listen to it like months later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when we're, when this episode comes out, my Dark Twisted <sighs> Fantasy will have just turned 10 years old, which is so crazy because oh, yeah. it's November 2010. Yeah, yeah, right. mm-hmm. and it's—I mean, it's such an incredible album, and it's so annoying that he sucks now. It's like, can you just not suck so that we can all just like bop for uh, the same? Like, we can all collectively just enjoy Monster again. Like, right? Why are you taking this away from Nicki Minaj? Okay, why are you taking away one of her greatest verses? Because you're a freaking nut nightmare. But mm-hmm. anyways, that's just me being mad at Kanye. Um, okay, I have two more questions for you. One is, who is the coolest person who's expressed interest or excitement in your book? Slash, have you heard from Kendrick or TD since the book came out? Oh, okay. Um, first question, the coolest person that you, that's expressed interest since it's come, come out? Yeah, like the coolest person that you know who's read it or like you saw someone tweeted like, yo, this book is great. Like, is there anybody that excites you in that way? Yeah, well... Uh, I would say that's it's sort of a two-headed monster. Uh, Terrace Martin and Robert Glasper. I did a talk with them not too long ago, and I was nervous. Like when the book came out, I was incredibly nervous because even though I know it's super positive, I know that it's the first book on Kendrick ever, and so that that naturally comes with a bit of skepticism. Mm. Yeah, and and now that people are getting their hands on it and they're reading it, and they're like, oh. Okay. That bit, yeah. All right. Cool. Marcus is cool again. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> so, so, um, so no. Like Terrace and Robert are super enthusiastic about it, and they've been like really supportive. Um, and Kendrick and TDE definitely have the book. I have not heard from them yet, but I also realize that again, they're in album mode. They stay in album mode, and so. Quite frankly, I'm I'm preparing to like not hear anything ever um, because that's just how they operate. So I'd be shocked if I heard something uh, in a positive way. So, you know, I just have to move forward with the next projects. And if if they if they're down with it and they want to shout it out, if they want to hit me up privately. Amazing. But I also realize it's not a it's not a requirement because they really have no reason to. Right. Okay, last question. If you could have one person, dead or alive, read The Butterfly Effect, who would you want it to be? I would want it to be... I would want it to be my grandmother uh, because she was a hero of mine and she passed away in 97. Um, And I am pretty sure... I mean, her spirit is still here. I I know it is. Um, But... I wish she was around to actually see all of the love because she was a big musical influence on me as well. Um, you know, whether it was her gospel music, whether it was her love in Elton John, you know, she loved all kinds of music and it showed me as a young black kid that good music is good music. It doesn't matter where it comes from. And so if there was a way for her to read it, um, that I would, I would love to like hear her thoughts on it. That's so nice. I love that. I also think that older black folks love Elton John. They are here for Elton. Yo. My Elton dad like loved Elton John. My dad was like big Elton John. Big. And he was an older black man. So I feel like 
anecdotally hearing your grandmother and my dad, I'm like, oh, all older black people <laughs> love Elton they John. Love they love it. 80s Elton, please. So, I mean, please. bops. Bops on top of bops. <laughs> all day. I love it. I play it. I still I play it. I play it all day, every day. Yeah, I love I Elton John. We're doing, so I have um, 10-month-old twins. And my husband and I are doing a project where every Sunday we introduce them to a new iconic album, according to us. We've already done Yellow Brick Road. It was very important. We're saving my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy till the 10-year anniversary. Um, And we did Thriller, which was really... We were torn about Thriller for the week of Halloween, but we felt like, you know, separate the artist from the art. Um, But we also have done, you know, Celine Dion, Iconic, Falling Into You, you know, we... Spice Girls was iconic for me, so we did that. <laughs> I ain't mad at it. I ain't mad at none of it. Good music. What if it's good music? It's good it's music. Good I hear that. That's right. Well, this has been such a treat talking to you, um, everybody at home. If you have not picked up the book yet, you still have time. We will be discussing it next week, November twenty fifth, with Cole Kushner. The book is The Butterfly Effect: How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America. I also encourage you if you have read the book but you want a little bit more. Definitely check out Dissect. Check out um, Cole's seasons of both To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn. They're super interesting. Um, they give a different but very complimentary um, insight into the work, um, You know, much more musical because it's a podcast, but it really listening to those episodes and reading the book kind of concurrently really informed my understanding of the work. So I encourage you all to do both of those things. Marcus, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thank you. It's been great. I really appreciate it. This is such a treat. And everyone at home, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you to Marcus for being our guest today. And thank you to David Brown at Simon & Schuster for helping us set up this interview. Don't forget our book club pick for November is The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America by Marcus J. Moore, which we will discuss on November 25th with Cole Kushner. And be sure to head to thestackspodcast.com slash shop to check out our brand new merch. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to rate and review the show. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram, at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter, and thestackspodcast.com. Today's episode is edited and produced by Sebastian Alcala. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagiragis. The Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. <laughs>